If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Elizabeth very sensibly decided to govern a different way. She ruled like a man, she thought like a man, and as far as possible she acted like a man. That was Lisa Hilton on the reign of Elizabeth I. These were women who really paid their rent in this world, and they looked out for each other, and I I, I loved that. I also... It was a revelation to me how far they were willing to go for each other. And that was Anita Arnand talking about the work of Sophia Duleep Singh and her fellow campaigners for women's suffrage. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, Available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo, and Zinio. Look out for us in your App Store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fifth podcast of January 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now, she is probably England's most famous female monarch, a woman whose life and reign continue to intrigue and fascinate historians. But how did Queen Elizabeth I view herself? Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Lisa Hilton, author of our new biography of the Virgin Queen, to find out more. So, Lisa, I mean, how significant would Elizabeth's gender have been to 16th century society? I mean, would it have made a difference in, in the way she was brought up, for example? One of the reasons that I wrote this book was that I felt that too much emphasis had been placed by latter-day historians on Elizabeth's gender. There's been more and more focus on her as a woman and less and less as, um, as a statesperson, if you like. Um, in the 16th century, yes, obviously there were vast and highly significant gender differences. 
Um, it was a much more hierarchical society. It was extremely patriarchal. However, in the case of monarchs, I think this is very different. Monarchs um, traditionally occupied if you like, a more neutral gender space. It was, in fact, an, in fact, an ungendered category. So as, as a woman, Elizabeth's um, gender was less significant than it might have been had she not been born also royal. Um, clearly, there were certain differences in how this affected her as, um, as a governor. Um, she couldn't have men in her household. Um, her household had to be staffed by women. She couldn't lead um, her men in battle in the same way that her father, Henry VIII, had done. But aside from that, in terms of the practical day-to-day -day running of the royal court, there were remarkably few differences um, relating directly to her gender, except where she chose to employ or deploy them, which she certainly did. Um, in terms of her upbringing, um, she shared her brother Edward's excellent humanist education and in fact probably surpassed him as a scholar. There were certain areas from which she was excluded. Um, we have a rather sort of miserable picture of a disgruntled little girl um, being sent off to do her embroidery or practice her music while her brother Edward got to do exciting things like practice with his sword. Um, but apart from that, the differences are much, much smaller than, than recent historians might have led us to expect. Do you have any examples of when perhaps it would have been a benefit for Elizabeth to have been a, a female ruler? It's certainly the case that, I mean, one of, one of Elizabeth's most famous statements is that, you know, I may have the body of, of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, yea, and a king of England too. Um, she certainly knew how to play on the gender role which her society expected of her when it suited her to do so. Um, one interesting example of this is in her use of dancing as a means of diplomacy. Um, dancing was um, an extremely important part of Renaissance etiquette. It wasn't just done for fun. Um, it was also about display, about status. Um, Elizabeth performed um, throughout her life, even when she was quite an old lady. She would dance with her ambassadors. She would show herself to the court. Um, and by using this sort of masculine-feminine interaction of the dance, she was able to convey quite subtle messages to, to those around her. That's one means. Another, of course, is the way in which she exploited the whole trope of courtly love. Um, we see Elizabeth's court as being um, one of a collection of men writing these rather extraordinary poems to Astraea, to Gloriana, to the Virgin Queen, um, almost as though they're a court of lovers worshipping their mistress. Um, now, of course, everybody in the 16th century knew that this was a game. It was a very elaborate intellectual joke. Um, Latter-day historians have read this rather, rather more literally and have suggested that Elizabeth really did figure herself as some kind of perpetually refusing mistress. Um, this really isn't the case. What Elizabeth was doing, she was, she was using the trope of courtly love which surrounded her um, as a woman and using it to, to deploy her own power in a more interesting way. It was a means of keeping people off. It was a means of excluding them, but it was also a means of testing them. Um, one of the, the things I feature in my book is a very interesting interaction with Walter Raleigh where he writes to her in the feminine beseeching role and she replies to him in the masculine role. So whilst it's certainly true that Elizabeth did manipulate her gender when she chose to and was very conscious of her status as a woman, it didn't really affect her rule quite as much as one might think. You argue in the book that Elizabeth viewed herself as a prince. Um, in what sense did she see herself as such and you know, how did that actually work practically? Elizabeth did view herself as a prince, um, partly because royalty took that gender in the 16th century. She referred to herself as, we are a prince from a line of princes. 
Um, but she would also, in correspondence, for example, with her sister Queen Mary, Queen of Scots, refer to herself as a prince, and Mary would requ- reply in kind. Um, being a prince was a, was a neutral category, so it was almost interchangeable with monarch. So for Elizabeth to see herself as a prince was in no way anomalous, nor indeed a denial of, of, her, of her gender. It was simply what she was as a ruler. Um, but I think there's a more a more profound way in which she saw herself as a prince, and that's what really what what my book's about. Um, Elizabeth was in very many ways not a Renaissance ruler. We think of when we think of the Renaissance, we think of um, we think of the arts, we think of learning, we think of um, sort of magnificent palaces and glorious display. Elizabeth, partly because she was extremely stingy, uh, didn't really go in for any of that. She built no palaces, she commissioned no important artists, and although her her courts um, presided over one of the great flowerings of, of English literature which we, we, as a culture we've ever seen, very little of it was directly commissioned by her. So in that sense, she was very much not a Renaissance prince. However, she was in the most profound and I believe most important sense, which is that she was a Renaissance prince in the sense of government. She was the first person, um, the first ruler, really to apprehend um, the new statecraft, the new ideas about governance and the relationship between authority and the state, which were coming out of Italy as phrased most famously by Machiavelli in his book, Il Principe, The Prince. Um, and this was really a reflection of the way that society had shifted very, very fast in the Renaissance from essentially a feudal system to um, a nascent system of nation states. Elizabeth grasped this, and this is what she used to, to govern, and this is what makes England, in Elizabeth's time, the first time a, a recognisably modern country. England emerges as a na- nation state during her, her reign. And so this is the most significant way in which she was a Renaissance prince. And it's also, I think, much more meaningful than how many palaces or, or pictures she commissioned. Mm, I mean, how, how does she compare to other contemporary rulers? Many people compared Elizabeth with, with her contemporaries, but she was really quite sui generis. Um, she was compared completely falsely with Lorenzo il Medici, the, the great ruler of Florence, but it's a fairly specious comparison. Lorenzo was a great patron of the arts and learning, but he was also, in theory at least, an elected official who came from a family of traders. They, they really had very little in common. It was, it was a flattering but inaccurate compliment to Elizabeth to compare her with Lorenzo. Um, in terms of her relationships with other rulers, we have to remember that this was a time when there were an extraordinary number of powerful women governing Europe. Um, it was not only um, Elizabeth's predecessor, her sister Mary Tudor, but also Catherine de Medici over the Channel in France, the Queen Mother, immensely powerful, um, and of course Mary, Queen of Scots, over the border in Scotland. So although we think of the 16th century as being a time which was, was quite anti-women, in fact there were more powerful women, more governing women perhaps, than, than at any other time in European history to date. How does she actually compare with other female monarchs such as Mary I, you know, in her ways to kind of transcend her gender and, you know, be seen as a, as a prince? This, this is why I particularly wanted to focus on the idea of, of, of princedom in the case of Elizabeth, because I think what brought down both her sister Mary Tudor and Mary Queen of Scots um, was the fact that they tried too hard to configure themselves as women. One of the first things Mary Tudor did when she came to the throne, um, immensely popular, um, was betroth herself to Philip of Spain and destroying that popularity in, in, in one blow because she saw that her primary duty was to be a wife and to produce heirs to the throne. A very understandable view in, in the case of the 16th century, but in fact one which didn't suit at all with being a queen regnant. 
Similarly, Mary, Queen of Scots, insisted in, in, in one sense on her own authority, on her independence as a monarch, but consistently threw herself in the path of extremely unsuitable um, lovers and husbands. It was almost as though she wanted to play a traditional female role um, and in doing so denied and eventually destroyed her own authority. Elizabeth very sensibly decided to govern a different way. She ruled like a man. She thought like a man. And as far as possible, she acted like a man. Um, so I think a comparison with, with other contemporary female monarchs shows us that where they failed, it was because they tried to fit in with a paradigm of femininity, which really wasn't appropriate to royalty. Whereas in Elizabeth's case, she was brave enough to defy that paradigm. I mean, she still a hugely popular queen. Um, do you think she would? She and her reign would have had so much resonance with people um, if she'd actually been a man? Elizabeth, I think, is probably the most famous person who ever lived. When I started doing research for this book, I did a Google search just on how many, how many hits she gets every day. Um, and she's much, much more popular than Queen Victoria, than Hitler, than Abraham Lincoln, than Winston Churchill. The only person who came close to the Virgin Queen was, was Britney Spears. But even the, prince, even the princess of pop can't compete with Elizabeth. Um, I think one of the reasons Elizabeth is, is so resonant to us today is because she employed very, very effectively what we might term branding. Um, she, she was iconic long before the word was used about handbags. Um, we can all probably draw a picture in imagination of Elizabeth I, the, the, the red hair, the white face, the elaborate ruff. I think people, you know, millions and millions of people could conjure that image very easily in their heads. So yes, would she have been so popular had she been a man? I think possibly not. I think what she did was she, she played, as I've said, on her gender very effectively when it suited her. And she made an image of herself, um, which reaches its apotheosis, um, in the Gloriana portrait, um, just after the Spanish Armada in 1588, which I discuss in some detail in the book, she made herself into this this extraordinary, this this unique icon, and I use the word advisedly there, um, which really no one had ever seen before, and, and it remains with us even today. When we think of the 16th century, that's who we think of, perhaps even more so than her father, Henry VIII. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Henry VIII. I mean, do you think she learned anything from her predecessors? I think she learned an immense amount from her father. I think she learned most of all about the contradiction between the imperative of the ruler to preserve the state at any cost and the difficulty of reconciling that with a Christian ethic. This is what um, Henry tried and failed to do. It's something Shakespeare discusses in his play, Henry VIII, which is, of course, written with hindsight at the end of Elizabeth's own reign. Um, in the book, I talk about the conflict between chivalric kingship and statecraft, the idea of, of bringing together these two very disparate sets of ideas or, or ideologies, the one being essentially um, medieval and Christian, the other being recognisably um, modern. Henry failed to, to bring these two elements together, but Elizabeth succeeded. And I think that her father's example was extremely important to her in that. Um, I think she also learned the importance of being being loved by her people from, from Henry. Um, Henry, there's a lot of dispute about sort of how, how popular Henry really was with the people. Um, but certainly at the beginning of his reign, he enjoyed immense popularity amongst his subjects. And even, even at the end, people still spoke of, you know, good old King Harry. Um, I think Elizabeth learned the common touch from her father. And she learned that in order to, to remain in power, she had to make sure that people really loved her, not just courtiers, but ordinary people too. 
it's interesting that she was never really um, brought up to be queen. It was always sort of in doubt whether she'd actually, you know, make it that far. Um, but when she did, how do you think she made that move from from princess to, like you say, a prince, you know, a, a Renaissance prince? One of the things I talk about in the book, um, which I think is, is quite revealing about Elizabeth, is her handwriting. Um, we actually know very, very little about Elizabeth's private thoughts. There's been an enormous amount of speculation generated about what she felt about things, but really we know very little. We have her correspondence, which is largely formal and diplomatic, um, but she consigned very few um, private thoughts to paper. One thing we do have, however, is her signature, her famous scraping hand, as she called it. Uh, when Elizabeth learned to write, she wrote like a princess. She learned um, with her tutor, Roger Ascombe, um, from a book of Palladian cursive handwriting, which is, which is very neat, very proper, and was considered to be very feminine at the time. One of the first things she does when she ascends the throne is change her signature, and she takes the E and the R for, for Elizabeth Regina, not from the more feminine form, but from the masculine form she'd learned in her writing book. So she gives us a man's signature, and I had this image, an imaginative image, but of, of a young woman who, who's lived through some you know, extraordinary traumas and distresses, um, practicing her signature as teenage girls are wont to do. But instead of writing in um, you know, the crush of the week next to her handwriting, she's, she's creating herself as she holds her pen as a queen. Um, I think this is a very definite statement. It's small and subtle, but it's one that Elizabeth makes very clear. The first document she signs as, as, as queen, as ruler of England, she signs like a man. Um, and a lot has been made, obviously, um, of her being the, the virgin queen. Um, if she had married, um, do you think that would have made a difference to how people viewed her and, and continue to view her? I think if Elizabeth had married, which she was always absolutely determined not to do, yes, it would have automatically reduced her status. She would have been um, subject to her husband, as all wives were according to the rights of the church at the time. She probably would have been... Um, pregnant quite soon after marriage um, and hopefully would have borne children, which of course is what all her counsellors in theory at least wanted her to do. But in doing so, she would naturally have, have relinquished a, a great deal of authority. I think it's something that modern women, if it's not too extreme um, an identification, can understand today. We, we do feel compromised still by, by our biological role. We do still struggle with, with work, career and children and finding a balance between those. So in a quite modern way, Elizabeth, yes, would have, would have had difficulty um, maintaining her status as the leader of the court if she'd also been a wife and probably a mother. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why she chose not to marry, because she knew that any, um, any diminution of, of her authority could potentially be very dangerous. There's, there's an awful lot of nonsense um, about about Elizabeth I, um, and particularly regarding her relationship with, with her mother, Anne Boleyn, and with Robert Dudley, who was arguably the great love of her life. Um, a great deal of ink has been wasted on speculating um, as to whether or not she and Robert Dudley actually did it. Um, I couldn't think of anything less interesting to write about Elizabeth, um, especially because we simply don't know. The facts stop at the bedroom door. There is no evidence as yet 
that anything occurred between them physically um, beyond um, the kiss that she gave him when she made him an earl, which was witnessed by about 500 people um, just on his neck above his collar. Um, but aside from that, we simply don't know. So, so the enormous amounts of speculation which have been devoted to, to this, did they or didn't they, I think is just a kind of a waste of time. There are far more interesting questions to ask about Elizabeth. Equally, her relationship with her mother, Anne Boleyn, um, screeds and screeds of, of contemporary psychological interpretations have been written about the trauma or not that Elizabeth's separation from her mother and, and her mother's execution caused her. But again, looking at the evidence, we, we really don't have any evidence that she was ever traumatised by, by her mother's death. Um, she may have been, she may not have been, nor do we have any um, suggestion that she was influenced by her mother's religion or that she wore her mother's A pendant, as one historian confidently asserts, despite the fact that no such pendant exists in the royal account books or indeed in any image of Anne which was painted contemporaneously. Um, the images we have of Anne Boleyn um, wearing such a pendant were painted about 100 years after she died. So the idea that Elizabeth was keeping up some sort of connection uh, with her mother, I don't think is deniable, but I think it's certainly very debatable. Um, and it's one of the things I explore in the book, that the um, the idea that there was a direct influence of Anne Boleyn on, her on Elizabeth uh, isn't really the case. And are there other episodes from her, her childhood that you think have also been um, exaggerated? Um, there's, there's one famous episode from Elizabeth's childhood where her governess, Lady Bryan, uh, writes to the king saying that she's in need of um, money to buy the child um, shoes. She doesn't quite know what to call her, her ward anymore because yesterday she was the Princess Elizabeth, today she's my Lady Elizabeth, and either way she's outgrown her shoes. Um, and this has often been read to suggest that Henry neglected his daughter, that she was kept in some form of poverty. Um, and this simply isn't the case. Yes, it's true that after her mother's um, execution, Elizabeth was demoted in status, her cloth of state was removed, um, and she was treated as an illegitimate daughter of the king rather than as the, the heir to the throne. However, all the evidence points to the fact that Lady Bryan's letter was simply a normal letter that any governess would have written because her child had outgrown her clothes, as children have a, a distressing habit of doing, and a very expensive one at that. Um, so the idea that Elizabeth had some sort of terrible, neglected, impoverished childhood, again, is just not true. What we, what we have in terms of the evidence from the account books and the descriptions of her household is that she had a perfectly normal upbringing for a girl of, of her class and status. She lived in a busy household surrounded by servants, um, enjoying all the things that um, one would have expected a girl her age to have enjoyed. And so the idea that she, she had some sort of terrible latter-day Dickensian existence as this, you know, starveling, rejected orphan, again, it's, it's just not there. It's not true. What about her relationship with, is it Thomas Seymour? Thomas Seymour, yes. Um, well, you know, some, somebody reviewed my book really badly the other day. And I don't mind getting bad reviews, but I really mind getting bad reviews when they obviously haven't read the book, um, because the, the, the reviewer suggested that um, I, I accused Catherine Parr, her stepmother, of colluding in sexual abuse of her daughter. What I actually wrote was, to 21st century eyes, there's something very unpleasant going on here. It might seem to us that there was some form of sexual abuse going on, but that's not how it would have been seen in the 16th century. I was quite clear about that point. 
What actually happened, and we know that this happened, is that Elizabeth, after her father's death, was sent to live in the household of her stepmother, Catherine Parr, who was recently married um, to Thomas Seymour, the Lord High Admiral. Seymour would come into the teenage girl's bedroom early in the morning, aided and abetted by her governess, Cat Ashley. Um, he'd flirt with her. At one point, he chased her around the bedroom when she was wearing only her chemise. Um, on another occasion, um, Catherine Parr held Elizabeth's arms while her own husband cut the ribbons from Elizabeth's dress and exposed her. There's lots of accounts of whisperings, kissing, um, secret messages exchanged. Now, what seems to be going on is a fairly unsavoury flirtation. Um, and what seems to be even more peculiar about it is that Catherine Parr colluded in this. Uh, to suggest that this was sexual abuse as, as we understand it today um, would, of course, be, be quite wrong. It would be a retroactive judgment that wouldn't be appropriate to the 16th century when ideas about sexuality and age of consent were very different than they are now. Um, but certainly there was something very unpleasant going on with Seymour. Um, and my reading of the situation is that it was the first and possibly the last time that Elizabeth lost her head. Um, we assume that she was always this sort of terribly controlled figure, but as anyone who's ever been a teenage girl can attest, sexual desire is a very scary thing. It's very powerful. It's very anarchic. And the consequences to Thomas Seymour were extremely severe, as severe as they could possibly be. He quite literally lost his head because of his desire for Elizabeth. And I think that for Elizabeth, as a young woman, being involved in this terrible scandal, it was a warning to her never to let the, the anarchic power of, of sexual desire or sexual interest overcome her ever again. Um, so I think it's a situation in which we can read a great deal and obtain a great deal of understanding about her character. But we have to be very, very careful, as always, not to read it too much in, in modern terms. That was Lisa Hilton. Lisa's book, Elizabeth, Renaissance Prince, is published in the UK by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. In the US, it is now available for the Kindle. And if this interview has whetted your appetite for all things Tudor, then you might be interested in our new digital mini-guide, which tells the story of this fascinating dynasty through 50 moments that mattered most. It's available now from the BBC History magazine app on both iPad and iPhone. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that we have two upcoming reader events taking place this March. On the 21st and 22nd of that month, we're holding two-day events themed around Magna Carta and Waterloo. At each event, you'll get the chance to hear from a selection of expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Daughter of a Maharaja, goddaughter of Queen Victoria, one of the most famous figures of her age, Sophia Duleep Singh lived an extraordinary life. She was also a fervent advocate of women's rights, actively involved in the suffrage campaign. In her new biography, BBC radio journalist Anita Arnand explores Sophia's family background, her upbringing, the impact of her political activism and why her story is still relevant today. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, met up with her at Hampton Court to find out more. Talking about her background then, um, what was her family's experiences? What was the kind of land that they lived in like? So she had um, the most mismatched parents you can imagine ever. So her father was the heir to, well, he was the Maharaja of Punjab, which at one time was one of the richest, most powerful empires in India. Basically, you could slice off the top Mm. third of India, and that was... Ranjit Singh's kingdom he was known as the Lion of Punjab because he united Hindu Sikhs and Muslims had an enormously powerful army had wealth beyond our imaginings including the Kohenor diamond which was like this great rock that he had oh it's like a hen's egg I mean it's huge which he just strapped to his bicep So he was very, very wealthy. It was a place that was coveted. And then he had um, sons. Uh, Some were senior sons by senior queens, and some were junior. Dilly was a senior son, but the youngest, because he was uh, born of one of the favourite wives. Uh, And when Ranjit Singh died, this little boy was suddenly propelled to the throne um, with his mother, who was an extraordinary woman herself. She was the daughter of a kennel keeper. She was a formidable woman who refused to stay in the harem, just came out and said, no, I'm going to govern with my son. Um, So there's power, there's riches, there's opulence. And then you've got Sophia's mother, who was the illegitimate child of a German merchant and an Abyssinian slave. So, you know, comes from complete poverty, um, lives a cloistered life of great devotion and Christianity, uh, it doesn't know anything about the world. It's just innocent and virginal and almost nun-like yeah. and pious. I mean, everything written about her just keeps saying that this was a pious, good girl, but she was very beautiful. And so these two get together and they produce Sophia. So, and, and all of these ingredients are really evident in her personality. Mm. She likes to spend money in her youth. <laughs> she likes yeah. the finest things. Yeah. She's actually quite irritating. You know, <laughs> beginning. She's an irritating it girl yeah. type creature. Okay. But then she has this um, moral compass, which is just uncompromising. No one can, if she's decided that there is a, a good and right course of action, nobody can sway her. Mm. Not even the British government can sway her. <laughs> she's from that so strong-willed, that's what comes out Absolutely. of her. Absolutely, so yeah. strong-willed. She yeah. is, yeah, really strong-willed. So what led to, I mean, first of all, how old was her father when he came 
to the throne. So he, sorry, so, so no, he was just a child of uh, five years old when he came to the throne, and he was just sort of eleven when he was finally separated from his mother and deposed um, mm. and sent into exile. He never lost his title, Maharaja. Mm. Queen Victoria said he can keep that. The, the East India Company decided he could keep that in there enormous generosity <laughs> they took everything else you yes know. I know. Um, um, so yeah. I mean, how come he was deposed what was the circumstances so there, there were uh, the British had always had their eye on the north and there was uh, a man called Dalhousie who was just sort of uh, biding his time there, there, there were two Lawrences and, and Dalhousie and they just decided let's wait Let's wait till the time is right. So they couldn't touch it while Ranjit Singh was alive. They couldn't go near it. He just had the most powerful army, mm. one of the most powerful armies in India. But when he died, there was a great battle to succeed him. And there were factions, and there were fractious factions. And when Dili took over, there was still a lot of resentment bubbling in the kingdom. And the British thought, this is great. Mm. This is a really good opportunity to, to start making allegiances with people who might be able to break this kingdom up. And so that's what they did. They worked very, very hard um, going to people who were very high up in the realm but not on the throne, saying, do you really want to be governed by this woman and a baby? You know, this woman. And they referred to her in terribly disparaging thing, uh, ways. They, I mean, they, they called her a whore. They called her, one of them coined the phrase the Messalina of Punjab, which is what she became known as. They um, said, do you really want this? Or wouldn't you rather have your own kingdom? If the time is right and we call upon your services we guarantee you have your you can be a king in your own little kingdom and that's exactly what happened so there were two anglo sikh wars um, and the second one was decisive and the after the first one they the british entered because they had there was a treaty saying they would not cross this river the sutlej river which they signed with dilip's father but after he died this treaty's still in place but what if there is an insurrection and they can say they're coming in to protect the boy so they did that and when they came in to protect the boy, they garrisoned their troops in Lahore, made the little boy pay for it, separated him from his mother, um, and, and locked her in a tower. So there was no one really there to advise her, him or, or, or tell him what, what was happening right from under, you know, this kingdom's being inched out from under him. Um, the people of Punjab didn't revolt because they still had their king on the throne. But in the meantime, they're just preparing themselves for the second decisive battle, which will allow them to force this frightened, terrified little boy yeah. to sign everything over. And that's what happened, and that's what he did after the Second Anglo-Sikh War. He didn't see his mother for 13 years, is yeah, that right? that's right. He didn't. And uh, it's a tragedy, and she suffered so much without him. Yeah. You know, the last time she saw him, he was beautiful. He was a very beautiful child. And every, everybody comments on this, and Queen Victoria becomes obsessed with dispatches about him because they all talk about how beautiful he was. Um, and she, he is her only child. And so she pines terribly for him in a horrible situation. She's in Nepal, finally. She, she dresses as a beggar woman and escapes from the British fortress. And uh, she's kind of held prisoner. She doesn't have freedom to see people. She cannot be in touch with her son. Her son eventually sort of gets taken to Britain to live with his new mother figure, Victoria, the very woman who's robbed his true mother of everything, you know. It's such a strange relationship, that, that he has with her and that she has with him. Mm. Um, 
How important was she in forming his life from that point onwards? She was everything. She was everything and everything. This is a, a, a boy, a boy who was desperate for love. And you can see that, you know, when you... He was given to uh, two guardians, uh, the Logans, one, a Scottish surgeon and his wife, a Scottish doctor and his wife wasn't a surgeon. And you can see that he craves their attention to the point where, you know, he learns to speak like an Englishman. He learns to play parlour games, which are just, you know, half an evening they would, they would play music and then they would have blind man's buff or, you know, these sort of very, very quaint Victorian games. And he would read Shakespeare and he would read his Bible and he memorised a lot of the Bible. He just was desperate to please and be pleasing because he's so uprooted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he comes to England and Queen Victoria lavishes praise on him. She just thinks him beautiful, charming, refined, well-mannered. The Logans have done a very, very good job. Um, and he revels in it. He finds, finally finds his mummy, you know, mm-hmm. after yeah. a very, very long time. And they sketch each other. They're beautiful sketches that are still in Osborne House, uh, some of them. And some of them are held in sort of other repositories where they sat for hours looking at each other, looking at each other, sketching each other, and then, you know, swapping them around. There, there's a real tenderness. There's a real murky, tangled, <laughs> ghastly tenderness <laughs> if it, if it exists. There. It's, it is, it's like, it's, it is a stuff of um, epic tragedy, actually. Mm. And so how did he meet Sophia's mother? Well, he, he is pressured by Queen Victoria to settle down and find a wife. And... Um, because he and Bertie, the Prince of Wales, are very, very good friends and behaving very, very badly. Yes. <laughs> so they are basically whoring their way around London and Queen Victoria's sick of hearing about it. <laughs> so she says to her son, that's it, you are getting married off and you're going to settle down and you're going to stop behaving like such a fool. Mm. And she says the same to Denise, you have got to stop behaving like this and get married. She tries to arrange a marriage for him, which is, you know, rather... Uh, extraordinary, with, which is what his mother would have done if yes, he was still in yes. India. It was a very Indian thing, but I suppose also a very aristocratic Victorian thing. And she sort of matches him up with the only other brown <laughs> aristocrats, <laughs> just thinking if we put them in a room, they would have <laughs> like, Job done. But he doesn't like her. Mm. He thinks she's too sophisticated. And what he wants is a... Because he's had many love affairs and many trysts and Nobody wants to marry him. They're, they're very happy to be flirted with. Mm. They're very happy to get jewels and even, you know, have, have intimacy with him, but they don't want to marry him. They don't want a, you know, a husband like that, a heathen no. in your house. So he goes sort of quite hurt and he looks around for a pious Christian girl and, there is a, and he's taking his mother's ashes to India. This is how he stops off in Cairo, uh, which is a stop-off point for most of the very long voyages. And he says, can someone please find me a girl like this? And he goes to the Christian missionaries because he is a Christian. So mm. it would be really lovely if she's Christian. But it would also be really lovely if she's quite pliant, uh, humble, and will be like me, an outsider. And there's a girl that they know about who is almost made to order. And that's poor old Bamba, who's living such a happy life, a blissfully happy life in her cloisters, teaching Bible studies, loving all the missionaries who are around her. And she gets plucked from this life and thrown into paradise and then hell. You know. I feel so sorry for her the I whole do. way through. It's I know. so awful. It's heartbreaking. Actually, really? the women suffer so much. I know. It's... Which I think also informs her, her righteous, Sophia's righteous indignation on the part of women because mm. she sees so many women suffer in her life and, and hears of it. So 
I mean, how did all these experiences shape her later character? Do you think you said a bit about her stubborn, not stubbornness, but her? Well, I think I think she has. I think she has two very separate parts of her life. Uh, the damage that was done to her in her youth. She had a completely incapable mother who was an alcoholic. She had, in quick succession, lost that mother who actually dies at her bedside. Yeah. You know, and so she will always carry that guilt, survivor's guilt, that you know, her mother died praying by her bedside for her to get better. Her beloved younger brother, who she... I mean, I can't even express how much she loved him. She, they were just joined together. Then he dies, and her father dies. They lose everything. She's so insecure um, until her coming out, until she's about 18 years old, mm. that she can't talk to anybody. She can't look at anybody. People think she's actually backwards. They think she's... You know, she's going to be held back. She's never going to get married. Because she's so insular. She's so, so introvert. Yeah. And, and it, it worries people. And so Queen Victoria does a bit more for her, also because she's her godmother. So she owes a duty of care before God to this, mm. this poor girl. So she takes a very special interest in, in looking after Sophia and bringing her on gently yeah. and trying to make up for the neglect that she suffered over this terrible time when her father's abandoned them. You know, five or six years of terrible neglect can mm. go on. Um, and so but then she decides that she doesn't want to live this way anymore she's got this great public occasion which she has no choice about she's got to come out she's got to have her debut in society it's going to be at Buckingham Palace she suddenly does this extraordinary thing which not many people are capable of she bucks up she just suddenly says alright I'm going to... She turns into the bionic woman you know? I know I will rebuild myself and she does that yeah exactly I mean that moment that she you know, turns from being this person who hates having her photo mm. taken, turns mm-hmm. to profile all the time. Yes. And then suddenly realises that she really likes it and embraces it. Yes. What gave her the strength to do that? I think at first she forced herself to do mm. it. Um, but when everybody, when she got a lot of praise for that incredibly successful debut, which was one of the most important debuts mm. that year, um, because there was so much royalty and so much fanfare around this one, it was, it was stuffed to the girls with... Um, people from the royal courts of Europe, politicians, ambassadors, and she does it flawlessly. Mm. And people praise her. And she suddenly, she likes being praised. Anyone would. Mm. Yeah. So all of a sudden, she's like, I can kind of get used to this. I can do this, exactly. I can do this, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I think then she starts to crave it in quite an unhealthy way. Mm. Yeah. So she does become a little bit of a headline hound, you know, for a while. And talking about later when she is this famous figure, do you think there's any parallels between her and modern-day celebrities? I always think she's really kind of similar to a Princess Diana type figure who will turn up to a place and everyone will talk about what they're wearing mm. for ages. Um, and, uh, but I can't think of a single person who has that honour and privilege that she had. She could have lived the nicest, most comfortable life ever, who then suddenly starts throwing herself into baton charges and throwing herself at the Prime Minister's car and chucking herself under horses' hooves and, uh, you know, the kind of thing that she did and goading them again and again, come and get me, arrest me, because she wants to go on hunger strike and be one of the suffragette sisters who she respects so much to do this thing, to do this thing that must be done, which is women must have the vote. She believes it to her bone marrow. She thinks it's the only important thing in her life. So how does she get involved in that as well? So she's, she, goes to, she goes to India against the um, wishes of the British government. They really don't want the Dilip Singhs in India because they don't want the Punjab to be stirred up. And they see this tiny little window of opportunity and the girls go. And then she comes back, her eyes are completely open. So she goes back to this pointless socialite, irritating woman. 
And she comes back just thinking, this isn't enough for me anymore. Uh, her sisters are pursuing their own destinies. You know, one of, one of them stays on in India, the other one goes off to Germany. But she just comes back looking for something useful to do. And she's very struck by poverty. And I think she sees that here with the Lashkas for the first time, notices them. And they are, many of them from her, her father's homeland, you know, from Punjab. And they're just dying of cold on the streets. So she suddenly starts thinking, right, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the one to help them. And then... She's still looking for something. It's not filling her, her time enough. She goes to India. Um, she sees the, the revolutionary movement. So she gets more politicised. She gets sort of more politically aware. She doesn't want it to be just a, a do-gooder who goes and puts money into people's outstretched hands. She wants to change things because she meets people who are going up against the system. And these figures are huge. I can't tell you how enormous... I mean, when I was reading it, it turned... The, this diary of hers, and she's mentioning these people. I thought, my God, I am actually dealing with Where's Wally? I mean, she, <laughs> there is not one single famous person <laughs> in England or India that she hasn't crossed paths with or in some so meaningful you know, way. You know, Winston Churchill, uh, you know, just was absolutely sick to death of her because she kept complaining about police conduct. So writes on a file about her, right, this is it. We can, we can just don't even answer her anymore, yeah, you know, yeah. which is terrific. Um, uh, she meets Gandhi, she meets this one particular guy, Lala Lajput Rai, who is an enormous figure in the revolutionary movement, who becomes like her surrogate father for a while. And then she comes back after spending time with these revolutionaries who are dangerous men and women to the British, and she comes back thinking, no, I can't just give money, let's change things. Mm. And she bumps into a woman called Una Dugdale, totally through the social circuit, the socialite circuit, who's the uh, daughter of a... Uh, a, a, a commander, a naval commander, and uh, she's a suffragette. And she says, "Well, let me tell you about what's going on." She joins from that day, and then commits from that day completely. So she combines these social connections with this political inspiration that she has while she's away. Yeah, and she uses it to really kind of spearhead, or not spearhead, get involved in this huge thing. Yeah. What was her role in this in this movement? So first of all, she. Um, joined as a, a a celebrity totem, I suppose. <laughs> you know, she would go along to at-homes and parties because it was hugely magnetic to women who wanted to meet a princess. And so it was very, very helpful to the suffragettes, both for fundraising and also for beefing up their numbers. So the WSPU would just sort of use her quite a lot, mm. sort of at these at-homes. Uh, but then it becomes more than that because she's not satisfied with that. She gives money. She gives money frequently. But then they start... And they, they use her again for fundraising. They sort of say, oh, look, these are jams and cakes made by the princess. She does not know one end of a rolling <laughs> pin from the other. It's absolute rubbish. You know, she's got so many servants to make stuff. <laughs> yeah. But it makes a lot of money, yeah. you know, as it would today. Um, but then she just still wants to do more. So she gets involved with the Tax Resistance League. And she um, refuses to sign her census papers. She sort of scrawls all over them. So she becomes a census resistor. And then she becomes actually quite militant. So she starts going on marches. And I think the Black Friday march is just seismic for her. It's, uh, it's where Emmeline asks her to lead because she's such a celebrity. And she leads with a group of rock star women of their day, yeah. you know, who are so famous that it's almost like they have a force field around them when they're walking through the streets yeah. until they touch the gate and then the other women come and all hell breaks loose. I mean, if you read the, the Black Friday stuff, yeah. um, it's extraordinary. And she, instead of sort of staying in safety, she goes wading out again. Uh, gets arrested, gets slightly beaten up, 
Um, so it just sort of shows you what kind of woman she is. And then she suddenly starts becoming, you know, properly militant, yeah. throwing her body in harm's way and goading them, come and get me, yeah. come and get me, come and arrest me, send me to prison. But it's just not worth the British authorities' while to have... It would be so embarrassing. Queen Victoria's goddaughter in prison. Yeah. So they keep arresting her and keep letting her go. So that, that actually helped her, which is strange, I suppose. You wouldn't think that. She hated it. She absolutely hated it. Mm. She really felt guilty about it. There's this incident where she pays the bond money for Ada Wright who's a very notorious suffragette. You know, if you ever see pictures, you'll see her on Black Friday, she's lying unconscious on the ground and there's police officers around her. That is Ada Wright. Ada Wright is a, a, a committed suffragette who's arrested many, many times. And they both get arrested after this brawl outside uh, a London square where Emmeline Pankhurst is speaking. And uh, they let Sophia go, but they keep Ada and they're going to send her down. And then Sophia very quietly and secretly pays the fine, which is a very controversial thing to do because the suffragettes did not want fines paid. Mm. They wanted to go to prison. Yeah. They wanted to hunger strike and they wanted to shame the government. Yeah. So Ada's got really strong feelings about it. So she sort of does it very, very quietly out of shame that right. I can't have you go to prison when I'm yeah. not going to prison. Yeah. yeah. Some of the stories, I'm still surprised, even though I've read them in the past, some of the stories, of how violent mm. the treatment they received. I found the sexual brutality extremely... <sighs> Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, account after account. I knew that it had been violent. I knew that, you know, there'd been baton charges and people pushed. But the actual use of sexual degradation against these women, time and time again, was astonishing. Um, so what do you think her legacy was in terms of the outcome of this movement, this campaign? What do you think that I she... think she greatly helped, just as all of these women helped in um, changing the country and getting votes for women. Had they not pushed that door... God knows how long that door would have stayed closed because there was no tearing rush to give women the vote. There was no appetite for it. It was, it was dogged determination on the part of these very, very brave women that got it. But her personal legacy, I think it just has got lost, you know, so in, in, in time. But she has left such an imprint on people who, whose lives she touched. But I hope she'll, you know, influence more people just to get up and do something. You know, yeah. now that if people read this and if all that they get from it is that, you know, if you can do good, try and do good. Yeah. That would be a good thing. Why do you think her story has been perhaps overlooked? Why, why is that happening? So she had no children. None of the siblings had children. They died with that generation. So there was nobody to carry the torch or to talk about them again. Um, she uh, dies at a time when India and Pakistan are being born. Empire is dying. And so the relevance of that name, the Dilip Singh name, is fading because you've got other people now that, India in particular, which is a place that you would think would really want to know about her and talk about her, they have their Nehru's and their Gandhi's and their Jinnah's to talk about. There are a whole pantheon of new gods to talk about. And here in Britain, there's an active campaign to bury her name. So to take any credit for, from her for any of the work that she did, particularly raising money during the war, um, but just to brush them up, brush them away now. They're not relevant anymore. Let's brush them Why away. Why is that? They, the Punjab was simmering, you know, mm. it's sort of during 1919 was the, the time of the massacre, the Amritsar massacre. They just did not want this name to be up in the headlines for any reason, particularly not going to prison fighting for women's votes. You don't want a hero out of a doo-deep thing. You want them to fade away from history. Mm. And that the concerted attempt to sort of fade her away... It worked. And the suffragettes, there are suffragettes, there are so many amazing suffragettes whose names we don't know. We know, what, 
Emmeline Pankhurst, mm. at, a, at a push you'll know, be able to name three or four others if you're interested in the subject. And they're the ones who went to prison and starved for their sisters. She was never allowed to do that. And so, again, she slips. Yeah, yeah. So, you know. What do you think her greatest strengths and weaknesses were? Uh, she was um, vain. I think partly vanity might have killed her because she had a tumour which really needed to be operated on, but she refused because she didn't want her face marred mm. and to lose an eye, which I suppose sort of harkens back to her grandfather being a one-eyed man. Um, she, she was stubborn, and sometimes that's not attractive. Um, you know, in later life, the servant said she was quite diff- She was a difficult woman to work for. But her strengths were she, was, she had a bottomless pit of love and affection for those she loved. And she was loyal, no matter what she was loyal, no matter how people might let her down or let themselves down, she never wavered. And she was principled, honourable, you know. I think that she was just, I really came to respect her as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of what you think this story might have lessons for today or any misapprehensions that readers might have about the period, do you think there's any of that? Well, I think it's completely relevant today because every time I hear some Russell Brand, when he says don't vote, or when people are saying, you know, just don't bother turning out, it makes me want to tear my hair out because I think, actually, you even have that choice. It's not so long ago we didn't have the, you know, the right so don't squander it. So I think it's hugely relevant today that if you don't have a voice, you can't change anything. Um, and I think it tells us that at the time, you know, everyone thinks Victorian England was also very pleasant. It wasn't people were afraid. They had terrorists yeah. in their midst. They were looking around thinking, God, what's going to blow up next? Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, very different time, but also quite similar. Finally, what yeah. was the biggest surprise in the course of researching and writing this book? Uh, just how connected things are, how people's lives overlapped and how, um, how one person can make such a huge, huge difference. I think that was, it was, she was like this little pebble that went into a pool and all the ripples were connected to her. And it sort of made me feel quite uh, like I'm not really doing enough <laughs> in the world to pay my rent in this world. Because <laughs> these were women who really paid their rent in this world and they looked out for each other. And yeah. I, I, I loved that. I, it was a... It was a revelation to me how far they were willing to go for each other. That was Anita Arnand. Sophia, Princess, Suffragette, Revolutionary, is out now, published by Bloomsbury in both the UK and the US. And you can read more from the interview with Matt and Anita in the February issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's edition, we explore the history and global legacy of Magna Carta as it approaches its 800th anniversary. We discover how Britain became entangled in the Vietnam War. And we explore the hidden stories of British soldiers captured by Germany in the First World War. You can pick up our February issue now in all good news agents and digitally. And just before we go, it's time for the latest instalment in our First World War the oral history series that follows the conflict's centenary month by month through interviews with the Imperial War Museum. We've now come to January 1915, and let's hear from Private George Ashurst describing his experiences of suffering from frostbite in the wintry conditions. I get in my bunk here. I'm going to have a rest, you know. It's my, in I'm in going the to side of the trench? In the side of the trench. And I'm, I think it's been raining, yes it has. And I'm in like this, you know, my gun sheet hanging over me here. My feet are down there. So, of course, after a while, I waken up 
And uh, nobody waking me, the lads, because the lads wouldn't wake me at all. I waking up and, well, well, the ice is around my ankles here. Little thin ice, you know, is around both my ankles here. Oh, I said, look here. I'm frozen up like, you know, just as a joke. And uh, I brought, yeah, I should pull my feet out and they didn't feel cold, so bad they're out. So I carried on. Then relief came. On the fourth night, relief came. And uh, I walked out and across the ploughed field. I thought, oh, I'm picking up a lot of thick clay stuff off this field, you know. I thought that. Until I got on the road. I thought, oh, there, I'll shift it when I get on the lane. McCarran Lane sort of thing, you know. So I started kicking it off, but it never went. I was still walking on beautiful pads. You know, after I'd kicked all over the place to kick this stuff off my shoes, I walked on. I thought, ooh, like walking on sponges. And I got to the smoker's corner. I had a smoke like everybody else, fell in and marched off. Never said nothing to nobody, to the village. But when I got to the village this particular night, I am corporal of the guard. You see, each, each house provided a sentry every night to, to walk along these houses. Although he had nothing to do but walk along. Anyway, I had to go in that house. Say this lad out of four was sentry. They was on guard. I had to go on with the corporal of the guard. So I had to move out of my billets and go to theirs. Of course, I was laid down there all night because the lads, if anybody came around, they'd wake me up, you know. And I didn't do sentry, you see, only the lads. And uh, I'm asleep all night, then I wake up. They come in, they wake me up each morning. Oh, hell. My feet are that big. <laughs> Both of them. What, really oh. swollen up? Swollen, you should have seen the laces. You know, puffed up between each lace. So, I can't get up. I can't stand on my feet. Can't get up. So, lads looked at me and said, Oh, hello, Sergeant. Get corporal. And they went in. They <laughs> told me, sister, the woman at back kitchen, you know. So, they come running in. Oh, bring him in. And they had to carry me back place and place me with my feet near the fire, near the stove, you know, near the stove. That was George Ashurst. And you can, of course, keep up with our First World War every month in BBC History magazine. And that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we will be talking about workhouses with Samantha Shave, while David Canadine will be telling us about his new role editing the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. 
Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>